Thank you very much. I um, am a little nervous because I had to follow through with uh, follow two extraordinary athletes. And I don't like their lives, the way they describe them. It's trained, it's disciplined, it's organized. It's a constant struggle that uses up all of their mental facilities and capabilities as well as physical. I am an artist and it's different, very, very different. I will describe it to you and then I hope we'll have time for questions that you may want to put to me. I had no reason and no encouragement to be a writer. I didn't think about it until I was over 30. And I only thought about it then because there was something I wanted to read about and I couldn't find it. I thought everything I needed to read or wanted to read had probably been written by somebody somewhere. And at some point, I discovered there was a silence, uh, absence, a vacancy about somebody I knew intimately, which was a young black female. Now, there were books in which <laughs> such a character appeared. But she was always a joke, uh, an instrument of somebody's pity, or to add comic relief. Other characters could work out their own generosity on her. But what I thought at that time, if she were center stage and held all the attention and the whole text was about her, two things occurred to me, that it would be about her vulnerability and her absence and her inability to speak for herself and that I, as a writer, would speak for her with other characters or by some skill I imagined at that time that I had. When the book was published, it received the kind of uh, tension that I thought it would, which is about 200 people bought it, although I have to say I was thinking 400, but. The company that published it was even more optimistic. They printed 1,500. And then they decided to go out of print, um, although they did get a paperback license. And um, then an extraordinary thing happened. Um, some universities, public universities in New York and elsewhere, had begun at that time to offer courses in women's studies, and they were changing the curricula in a lot of places and reorganizing what was required reading. 
and some group in New York City uh, decided that The Bluest Eye, which is the name of that book, would be required reading for everybody who went to the City College of New York forever. <laughs> so the paperback company, you know, sort of got it together and it became uh, uh, well distributed and well read and is, as you may know, it's still in print. The interesting thing is, um, once I, I took about six years to write that book because I enjoyed the process of invention so much and of translating some geographical places, disguising them a little bit, using them, selecting sentences, metaphor, all of the work that goes into fiction. That was such a delight for me. But I had done the real thing, the important thing. I had been working since I'm 12 years old so that I did have a full-time job. And by that time, I had children, small children. So I had to write at odd hours in the nighttime when the children were asleep or get up very, very early before they said, Mama. But that filled my imaginative life and my inner life so much that I felt able and competent and smart in the other areas of my life because I had this secret thing that I was doing for me, meaning I was the ideal reader. I was the one whom I wanted to please. Um, selfish, narcissistic, all of that, but that is part of, I think, the drive. Now, it sounds disciplined, and maybe there was some because external things, you know, if you have a job, you are disciplined because you have to go. But what happens if you don't? The point is I had the thing that I had never developed well in terms of, um, I mean, I was an excellent worker, a very dedicated worker, but in other ways, I was not a disciplined person. I operated on something that works for me, which is compulsion, desperation, and hunger. And they are good substitutes if you don't have habits of discipline, I mean daily habits of discipline, not intellectual discipline, just habits. So, having completed that I was absolutely the most depressed, melancholy, sad, and despairing almost person. The world was so unbelievably bleak. And no reason that hadn't existed before. I mean, it was the same old nonsense that one encounters in 20th century life. Um, politically or financially or professionally. It wasn't any different. It had always been worse. But that sadness was stunning to me. And then I was sitting on a subway going to work in Manhattan and I got a tiny sliver of an idea about a book. And the world broke open, 
the sky was blue. People were wonderful or not, but who cared? <laughs> Everything was working because now I am uh, engaged imaginatively and I can do the extraordinary thing, which is to create something out of nothing, whole cloth. So that's when I began to write a second book, which was, is called uh, Sula. So now I know, I think I know, what makes me, uh, what drives me, what's the use of a compulsion, how to figure out where I need to be and what I need to know to make it better the next time, uh, what I need to know in order to not repeat myself. You know, I never wanted to be that author that gets to that place, that high place, where they're recognized, um, their talent is overwhelming, and they're loved. And so they stay right there with what works. And I still felt that I wanted to be new each time and to set the bar in language and imagination higher for myself each time so that each book was a different world for me. I am not interested really in my life I mean, I'm sort of interested in it because it's mine, but I mean, as a um, um, source for narrative, it's not interesting to me. Just as other people's lives are not terribly interesting to me, other people's real lives. Because there's no place for me to invent or to create. If I look at another person, no matter how fascinating they are, I think, well, that's done. They've already written that story, and they are the consequences of it. When I got to a book that uh, was, I guess, one of the fifth book I wrote, maybe, not sure, um, I had another idea about the relationship between um, the mothers and children. I had been aware of the pressure, this is in the early 80s, the pressure, the debate, the constant arguments, still going on, by the way, about the legitimacy of abortion, uh, pro-life, pro-choice, et cetera, except I don't think that was the language then. But very much, just you know, around Roe versus Wade, the notion that women felt, or some women felt, that their freedom to own their bodies was not to be challenged, and that they could choose whether or not to have a child. That they implied that the necessity of having them was a kind of imprisonment requirement that they had no control over and led them into terrible decisions. Those women equated maternity 
uh, with destiny and they wanted to change it. And they felt that the choice to change it was a huge measure of liberation. When I was thinking about that, uh, not having or being required to have children as a sign of freedom, and I thought about the reverse, which was in a particular situation when having children was a sign of freedom. And that would only be most theatricalized in a story about a slave mother who legally had no responsibility over her children. They could be taken from her at birth or any time. They were not hers. Although she was required and certainly encouraged to reproduce, because if you reproduce, you make another slave, she was forbidden to control those children. So standing up for ownership or control or having responsibility for one's own child was for her not just illegal, it was outrageous statement of liberation. So that became the idea for the book called Beloved. And my reluctance to enter into that sort of period, whatever period it might be of all those 300 years, was overcome by the compulsion to develop this idea. And I used a historical figure that I didn't do any really research on, just figured out from newspaper clippings who she was and what the response was, because I wanted to invent her life for her, her interior life. So I did not try to make it historically accurate, except in the most obvious ways. But when it was useful for the narrative, I made extraordinary changes. That way, I could use a historical figure and at the same time exploit not only her life, what little I knew of it then, but also exploit my own adventure, my own creation, my own compulsion to tell this story of a hundred and some years ago that I thought at the time had enormous pertinence on the contemporary world. This is saying stop, this little box here. <laughs> so I will, but <laughs> I would like to take a few minutes if you're interested, you don't have to be, but if you're interested in asking me questions in areas that I certainly had no time to explore in such a few, uh, with such a few remarks. I, I think we have time just for one. There's one right over here. Okay, one. Uno. Hi, uh, my name is Lev Sverdolf. I'm from City College of New York. You might have heard those loud applause for 
making your book required reading. <laughs> uh, my question has two parts. The first being, you've written a lot, as you, say, as you said, and uh, certainly your work's contributed to defining American culture through history. And I was just wondering, what is your personal favorite passage in your literature and versus your favorite passage from any other author? Um, I am writing a book now. It's so wonderful. <laughs> it's just the best thing. And I could, if I would, but I won't record or quote myself in this new um, manuscript. So I'm not going to answer your question, but I am going to tell you this. I was an editor for 20 years. Right? One of the things I learned and was taught when a writer loves that passage, really loves it, get rid of it. Get rid of it and never go back there again. That's always the sign of overriding or underwriting or you know, some personal thing that has nothing to do with the text. <laughs>